Well, special thanks to everyone who's been working hard this morning in various ways in order to uh, uh, help serve us as a community and have this service, especially our tech team to get us back online. Hopefully you've joined in through the live stream today. And Sarah, I apologize for that extra long passage, but I knew you could do it. So thank you very much for reading that. And uh, Justin, for your prayer as well, although you can tell Justin's prayer was pre-recorded because it's no longer a mild winter. But, um, but thanks, Justin, and everyone who's participated. Well, we are journeying through the Bible in a very rapid way. It's kind of a fast-paced, 30,000-foot uh, uh, look at the Bible as we binge-read the Bible together. And if you've signed up for the 90-day challenge, I want to encourage you to keep on reading. And if you're thinking, oh, I'm so far behind Don't let that stop you. Uh, You've got two choices, actually three. Give up, that's not really a choice. Or you can go back and just try and binge read this afternoon. It's way too cold outside to do anything else, so you can do that. Or just pick up where you left off, because there's no prizes. I have to tell you, there's no prizes for completing it in 90 days. That might uh, be a disappointment to Eric, but there's no prizes for completing it in 90 days. So just keep reading the Bible. Keep sending in your questions. I've had so many questions to answer on Wednesdays that I've had too many. So I've had personal conversations and that's been great. But let's keep reading the Bible, discussing the Bible, being curious about the Bible together as a community. And that's so exciting to be able to do that. Well, we are in the New Testament and some people are like, phew, I'm glad we made it through the Old Testament. But there's some tricky stuff here too as we're working through it. We've just had a really quick look at the Gospels. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us kind of this historical, theological biography of Jesus. And uh, we looked at that last week. We've kind of skipped over Acts. And so Acts does give also a historical account, a theological account, a biographical account of the early believers in Christ. It's probably one of the most exciting books to read. The way to read it, though, the best way is to read it with Luke's gospel. Because Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. It's kind of volume one and volume two. And if you've never done it before, read them together and you'll get a real sense of the flow of what Luke's trying to do there. Well, today we get to look at the letters, the epistles of the New Testament. And uh, there are 21 of these, 21 letters in the New Testament. And these uh, take the shape of what we call prose discourse. So we've talked about uh, poetry and we've talked about narrative. But here, when we come to the letters, mostly it's kind of a prose discourse. This is like a lecture. This is very direct information that's being communicated. And that's sometimes refreshing because you get to the point, but it's also sometimes hard because the point is difficult. And we find this. Well, of all the writers in the New Testament, Paul writes the most letters. Anybody want to guess how many letters he wrote out of 21? He wrote... 13. Uh, I don't know if that was the number you had in mind, but we know for sure there's some other disputed letters, but we know for sure that he wrote 13. And uh, he wrote them in two kind of categories. The first big group are letters to the cities, or most specifically, uh, the city churches. And then there's a small group that's written to individuals. And in each of the group, the letters are kind of arranged according to longest to shortest 
Roughly, if you ever wonder how the letters are put together in the New Testament for Paul, that's roughly how they're assembled. And so he is the most prolific writer of the epistles in the New Testament. As we think about letter writing, though, I think we have to admit that letter writing is kind of a lost art. I know my mom still writes letters, and I know my daughter, Triona, for a time, tried to write letters, but very few of us write letters today. So, I mean, if we can't say it in 280 characters or less, like, why bother saying it at all? That's kind of the attitude we have today. But there was this great time, and still is for some people, this art of letter writing. I was going to bring today, but I brought a photo of it instead, some letters, ancient letters from my past. And uh, these are letters that Christine wrote to me while she was still in Zimbabwe. So this was uh, just before we were married, actually just before we were engaged. And uh, Christine wrote a lot of letters to me. And I'm sure you're all thinking, why didn't you read some this morning instead of your regular sermon? But you don't get that privilege because they're personal. And uh, they're a great uh, treasure to me and a great source of comic relief to my daughters as uh, they've read through portions of it. But that's kind of this art of letter writing that maybe we have lost a little bit. Well, in the first century, in the time that Paul's writing, letter writing was at its peak. I mean, this was an art form. It was also very, very expensive. And you think stamps are bad today. Wait till I tell you about what Paul had to do. Um, I don't know what you have in mind when you think about Paul writing letters. Sometimes we see an image, uh, if you were to Google it, of a, an old man kind of hunched over a table with a, you know, a pen and an ink pot and writing on some parchment paper in a dimly lit room or something like that. Actually, as we look through it and as we discover it, uh, there's a, a gentleman by the name of Randolph Richards, and he wrote a book called Paul and First Century Letter Writing. And so if you're looking for something to do this afternoon, uh, you can borrow this book, (laughs) the books that pastors read on their spare time, eh? So in this book, in first century letter writing, uh, Randolph Richards describes the process. Paul didn't write alone. He oversaw the writing, but this is evident in his letters. He wrote as a team. And so this was a team effort, the different people he had with him. And he would write as a team until he got to the point where they were ready to do the final copy. So several rough drafts. And then they'd bring in a scribe that they would hire in order to actually write it out. And then there was the issue of delivery. Because you wouldn't trust the imperial postal service. Because it might be intercepted. It might not be delivered. And so you'd have to take a member of your team and equip them to go deliver the letter. Like, just imagine this for a minute. Uh, You're writing the letter in Corinth, and you want to send it to Rome, or you want to send it somewhere else. They have to travel all of that distance in order to deliver this letter. But when they got there, it's not like UPS. Don't just drop it at your front door and ring your bell, or not, and leave the package there. And they don't just post it up on the bulletin board like the missionaries do, and no one (laughs) reads the letters, right? Uh, This would have to be performed for the church. I don't know if you ever thought of that in the letters of the New Testament. They weren't actually passed around to the congregation to read. They were performed. These were audible works. And so the person that was sent also had to be able to speak this letter 
So imagine getting Romans and having to sit through that for your Sunday morning. Uh, so you think the passage 1 to 21 verses was a lot for Sarah to read. This would be the whole letter would be read out loud while people gathered. That was part of the whole thing. And then, as you can imagine, these letters were so precious that they would be preserved. Even better than I've preserved all the ones from Christine that she sent from Zimbabwe. Well, the longest letter of the Roman statesman Cicero, some of you might recognize that name, his longest letter contained 4,134 words. Paul's letter to the Romans that we read a small portion of, it contained a whopping 7,114 words. And so when the church in Rome received it, they were probably a little bit more stunned at the sheer length of the letter, even more than the content of the letter. These were long letters. Uh, Paul and his team, they had a lot to say. And so this is what they did. One little bit of um, extra trivia just about these letters that I think you might find interesting, and that was the cost of writing. Uh, Randolph Richards says that it would take a scribe um, probably about three days to scribe out, to write out a letter like Romans, because he writes about 85 lines per hour. And so after three days or even four days of writing out, do you know what the cost would have been in $2,004? That's the, the time of the book that I read, $2,004. The cost of the letter to the Romans would have been $2,275 to scribe out that letter. And then you had the cost of the travel and the cost of delivering it and all that kind of stuff. We just open our iPhones and download it for free. So you can understand the value of these letters and how incredibly important they were. They were a major investment. They would have taken massive resources in order to write. Why? Why bother to go through such trouble? Why bother to go through such expense? Why bother to, to even go through such risk at sending someone on such a long journey to deliver these letters? Well, here's my answer to that. These letters were written so that the church worldwide would be equipped to proclaim the gospel to the end of the earth. The mission of the church was that important that Paul and others invested huge resources and time and energy so that the church could be shaped, could be equipped to do its job, to share the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the reason for all of these letters that we find in the New Testament. Because that's the whole point of the gospel. The gospel isn't just good news for one person. The idea of the gospel is that God is forming a people, a group of people for his glory and for the good of the world. That's the point of the gospel. Um, there's a, a gentleman that uh, one of the authors, he said this, though the church is not the subject of the gospel announcement, Christ alone is the subject, of course, the church is a necessary object and Christ's death has a purpose. And the purpose was to save sinners and then incorporate them into a community that reflects his glory. That's the goal of the gospel. It's not just to save individuals so they don't go to hell. It's actually to shape and form a community that would be for the glory of God and for the benefit of the world. And that's what we find in these letters. So the gospel creates a community of people who are personally connected to the source of life. It's personal, but it's never private. 
That's so important as we think about the church. Even today, it's personal, but it's never private. I saw and heard an illustration uh, comparing the church and comparing the idea of the church to two things. One is uh, a bag of marbles. Anybody still have marbles? I think Kira has a massive jar of marbles, but if you can imagine a bag of marbles in one hand and a cluster of grapes on the vine in another hand, right? The bag of marbles, they belong together simply because they're in a bag together, simply because of proximity. I mean, they they look kind of alike and they have a similar shape, although they're all unique, but they belong together simply because of proximity. They're in the bag together. But grapes belong together for a whole different purpose. Even though they look alike and are still individual, the reason they belong together is because they're all connected to the same source. That's the unity that we find in the church. So the church isn't just a random collection of people who come together because they, they like the same things or they look the same way or they're just in the bag. <laughs> We're just in proximity to one another. That's not the church. Sometimes we behave that way, like a collection of individuals that just rattle around in the same space. That's not the church, actually. The church, according to the gospel and according to the New Testament writings, comes together because we're connected to the same source. That's Paul's great burden. He wants to tell us that we have unity and identity and purpose in Christ, that we are in Christ, that we're connected to that vine that Jesus talked about, and that's where we find our identity. So that's Paul's great theme in his letter and in many other letters too. So the letters of the New Testament, they seek to help shape and form and connect and correct and encourage this new community that's connected to the vine, which is Jesus, but also lives out its life in the world. And in the letters, we find actually a radical vision of this gospel community. Listen to the way that Galatians, that Paul describes it in Galatians. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. There's, there's other good ones too, but here's a good one. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Do we get how radical that vision is? Especially in the Roman world, which would have been so um, hierarchical in its understanding, so male-dominated in its understanding, so much class-oriented in its understanding of society. We still find that today. The gospel community was meant to be this radical cultural difference in the world, and we find that. The gospel community was meant to break ethnic and cultural barriers, neither Jew nor Gentile. It was meant to break social barriers, neither slave nor free. It was meant to even break gender barriers, neither male nor female, but all one in Christ. We are connected to the same source, and that makes us equal in the eyes of God. That's amazing. What an amazing community to belong to. I hope you get a little bit excited about it. Well, this is why the apostles were accused, and the early church was accused, of turning the world upside down. I've mentioned this before. Not in a good way. People didn't like it when churches moved into town. They didn't like it when the apostles came preaching because they were disturbing society. They were, in fact, the church was, in fact, a danger to society as they knew it at the time and still should be a danger to society today. 
We should be stirring up society. We should be challenging the culture. Uh, we should be engaged in what we do within this world so that they don't just see the church as some marginalized uh, has-been that's no longer relevant. Uh, but with the gospel, we still have the ability to challenge the culture, to stir it up, to turn the world upside down. Well, how do they do this? How do these gospel communities made up of a lot of marginalized people, how did they manage to turn the world upside down? Well, they did it by being different. And that's what we find right at the beginning of Romans. And if you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and you read his opening uh, verses in this chapter, it says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Then listen to this. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's another translation that says this. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. I love that. I love that expression. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't just go along with society. Don't just blend into the culture. Stand out, but stand out for the right reasons. The gospel calls us to be holy. The gospel calls us to be separate, to be different, but to be different in an attractive way. How do we do that? How do we set ourselves up to be different from the world? Well, here's the mistake I think we've made in the past, often, too often. We focused on the vices. We focused on externals. We've said that good Christian boys don't drink or chew or go with girls who do. You've heard that one before, maybe, maybe. Uh, so we focused on these things that we can control easily, and we've set ourselves up to be different. So we find our identity by what we don't do or by what we don't say. It's kind of like Canadians. If you ask a good Canadian, so what is a Canadian? They'll say, not American, right? Sorry to my American friends. That's a very unfair way to find our identity by defining ourselves by what we're not. But we do it in the church all the time. We like to point and say, well, at least we're not gay. At least we're not that. At least we're not doing that over there. You know, we point out to all the different places and people, and we define ourselves by what we're not. That's not a healthy way to define ourselves in the church. Holiness is so much more exciting and engaging than that. Uh, Brent, or Brett McCracken, he says this about the whole idea of finding our identity through holiness. He says, the thing about holiness is that the point of it is not to steer clear of all that is unholy. It's not about retreating from the world and existing in some perfect space, untainted by temptations and immoral sights and sounds. This only leads, listen to this, only leads to legalism and a neutered, irrelevant witness. Rather, the point of holiness is positive. To live in the world, reflecting Christ and his holiness outward in the way that we live our lives. Holiness is much more complicated than just abstaining from a checklist of vices. So yeah, there's things that we need to avoid. Absolutely, we find that in the New Testament writings. But holiness is so much more positive than that. And we find that in Romans chapter 12. I don't know if you picked up the idea and the description of what the gospel community is meant to look like. But we read this through Romans chapter 12, how we are supposed to live in a culture that is hostile 
to the gospel. What does it say? Instead of pride, we are called to humility. Instead of exclusion, we are called to hospitality. Instead of division, we are called to unity. Instead of evil, we're called to do good. Instead of revenge, we are called to bless others. Instead of elitism, we're called to equality. All of that is in Romans chapter 12, as Paul describes the difference that the gospel makes within the gospel community. But above all that, above all of it, the New Testament letters are really a call to love. That's the primary difference that we're meant to embrace. And I guess in that way, it's not so much different from the letters that Christine wrote to me. They were love letters. Well, these letters in the New Testament, over and over again, no matter what the writer is, you look through it, and it's going to talk about love and this call to love. Why is that? Because ultimately, compassion is the greatest apologetic of the church. Uh, When it says, you know, they'll know we are Christians, how? Not by our carefully reasoned arguments. It's good to have good reasons and good arguments. It's not by uh, how big our building is or how good our budget is. What does it say? They will know we are Christians by our love, by our compassion. That's the greatest apologetic of the church. That's how we were meant to be different. That's how the early church was different. One of the uh, emperors of Rome, uh, he looked at the Christians and he said to them, he said about them, they feed not only their own people who are hungry, they're feeding ours as well. And he was offended by that because that's how the Romans controlled their people. Bread and circuses. They gave them food and they kept them entertained. That's how governments operate. Uh, But here the church was coming along willing to feed anybody. That was different. That was the radical approach that the gospel embedded in community. That's what it looks like. And so that's what we need to follow today. Well, I have a quote here that I've often quoted, and it's one of my favorite that talks about the church. It's from uh, Bishop Leslie Newbegin. We're going to put it up right now. He says, How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? How? I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic expression of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. We are the expression of the gospel in this community. How will people know about God? How will people understand the gospel? If we live it, if we believe it, and we live by it. And so as we turn to the New Testament letters, we see a number of really big theological topics. We see that we are justified by grace through faith. We see that we are to walk in the spirit and not the flesh. We see that not all of us will die, but we will all be changed. These are huge topics. But then all of the New Testament writers make those letters very, very personal. So I love it when Paul, he writes in uh, Philippians to two women who were leaders in the church who obviously were arguing with one another. And he said to them, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to think the same thing in the Lord. He makes it personal. Or he writes to Timothy, Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. That's very personal. Or he writes about Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, apparently. and He's sending him back after a time. He says, I'm sending him back to you no longer as a slave, but as a dear brother. 
And so I love that about the New Testament letters. They have these huge theological concepts, but then they get very, very personal. And that's such a good reminder to us to recognize that following Jesus impacts every single aspect of our lives. It affects our relationships, our health, our economics, even our relationship to the government. Can you believe it? In Romans chapter 13, right after the passage we read, it says this, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Every aspect of our lives were to come under the reign of Christ and the rule of the gospel. Well, how do we wrap this up today? All of this, I want to point out, all of these gospel writings weren't just for individual spirituality. We're not isolated, even though we feel that we're distant during these days of COVID, but we're not actually isolated. These letters were meant to help shape a community that would embody the gospel, that would keep us connected to the source, which is Christ, but also connected to one another. And so in Romans chapter 12, and verse 5, it says this, So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So a couple of questions as we wrap up today. The first is this, and I hope it's obvious. Are you connected to the source? I mean, sometimes we can come in and out of the church. We can sense that we maybe belong, but we're belonging like a marble in a bag. Uh, We want to belong like a cluster of grapes. We want to make sure that we're connected to the source. Are you in Christ? That's the message of the gospel. But the second thing is, are you connected to the body? I know it's harder during these days and during this time, but are we uh, checking on one another? Are we loving one another? Are we praying for one another? Are we staying connected to this community that is meant to embody the gospel? That's part of the challenge in the letters as well. Sharing life together with other believers. So, why do we do this? Because as the letters of the New Testament show, both of these things, being connected to the source and connected to the community, are essential to our gospel witness. Well, let's pray together as we wrap up today. Father, we are grateful for your apostles, for these writers of these letters, who saw that it was worthwhile to invest huge resources and time and energy guided by your Holy Spirit, to write down the things that the church, through generation after generation, would need to know so that we can fulfill the mission that you've given to us. Help us to read these letters with insight and wisdom. Well, we need your Holy Spirit to guide us. We confess that some of it is sometimes hard to understand. But Father, in the end, we want to stay connected to your Son and committed to this community. We thank you for those those truths and those blessings. We pray that we would make your name known as we live together in community in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.